Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today we'll be talking with Greg Foss, who is one of Canada's first high yield credit traders. Greg has extensive experience in working with new and volatile asset classes. In our discussion, we'll cover why it's important to keep an open mind and understand the various risks involved with new asset classes. Hopefully, this will allow you to navigate the noise as you seek to grow your wealth. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. And now on to today's episode. Thanks for coming on today, Greg. Uh, really, really excited about this conversation and appreciate you joining me to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and, and uh, covering the gap between wealth management and technology and, and all things in the middle. Um, I have with me Greg Foss. And uh, Greg, I'll let you tell a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Kane. Um, it's a pleasure. Hello, Atlanta. Um, I'm a Canadian. Uh, I grew up in Montreal, uh, was an engineer at McGill University, and then uh, quickly realized I didn't want to be a practicing uh, mechanical engineer. I went down and got an MBA at uh, Cornell University and became a financial engineer. Uh, Came back to Canada, worked for the Royal Bank of Canada head office, worked directly for the CFO, Canada's largest financial institution, and uh, from 30 years ago, 1988, I've been focused on credit. So uh, it started at Royal Bank of Canada. I was working on something called the Brady Plan uh, for uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, but all money center banks in the world were working on the same solution to a problem where lesser developed countries had defaulted uh, on their obligations. And it was my first exposure to why uh we had to be concerned about the global banking system. Uh, worked through that crisis, uh, 1998, the long-term capital crisis. Uh, I was on the sell side of the street, meaning I was a trader for uh, a, an investment bank in Canada. Then I changed to a hedge fund uh, occupation. And in 2008, uh, the great financial crisis, I was at a hedge fund managing their credit portfolio. And uh, we successfully navigated those challenges uh, using a combination of debt and equity capital structure arbitrage, which is pretty interesting because, um, you know, if you have debt that trades in the U.S. market, but equity that trades in Canada for the same company, and that tends to happen, uh, you have two different silos that you can uh, hedge one against the other. For example, if you own the bonds uh, and the bonds are getting... uh, priced lower because uh, concern about default risk. Uh, But the equity trades in Canada and the Canadian equity owner does not know where the bonds are trading. There's some huge arbitrage opportunities. So that was a a pretty fun time in the markets. Um, And then in 2016, I put my hand up and said, I've had enough of this. It was a great run. We had just completed our most profitable trade in my career which was in restructured credit product that came out of the great financial crisis. And I said, I'm going to try and retire. And we talked about this a little bit before Kane. I tried to retire, but I very quickly realized that I'm never going to retire and I found Bitcoin. So there you go. A little bit circular what my history has been, but I found Bitcoin. I believe it to be the, the most beautiful technological innovation that I've ever seen in my 30 years. Most important, it is also the best asymmetric trade opportunity I've ever seen in my 30 years. So I can't guarantee you the outcome, but as a probability and a risk manager, I'll just tell you that if you do not have any exposure to Bitcoin, it's my opinion that you're taking far larger risks than if you have a a proper portfolio allocation. Yeah, that's great. Um, A lot of good points, Greg. And one of the reasons I'm most excited to kind of have you on and talk about um, your your background, your journey, um, is that, you know, as you mentioned, and, and we talked a little bit about you're in that retirement uh, stage. Um, I'm with Archetype Wealth Partners, and, and we talk, you know, we help a lot of clients manage their wealth. But, you know, honestly, a lot of times, what really happens in wealth management is more, you know, uh, all the other things in life, not necessarily just what's the return on my portfolio this last month, quarter, year, Uh, because, you know, the thing, the choices you make in life, 
dictate your cash flows, which dictate your ability to save, invest. And, and so really is a lot of other things that take place. So uh, we talk about a lot, uh, re-dash tire, okay. uh, because, you know, when you, it's, and you can relate to this is there's only so much skiing or golfing or uh-huh. paddle boarding that, that one can do before that kind of itch to do something yeah. uh, a little more meaningful than just relax. And you know, what's neat is for me, um, I'm honestly concerned about the global financial system. Um, I've seen the crises that have led successively to transferring risk ultimately to the balance sheets of the governments and the Federal uh, Reserve. Uh, there's no one else to transfer the risk to, okay? We're at yep. the top. Yep. We're, we, have, we have finished the game of hot potato. The Fed is holding that hot potato. And I found Bitcoin, and I honestly believe that I need to help do something to help educate the world, not to the benefit of myself so much, but to the benefit of my children. Uh, I don't want to leave the world in a worse place than I got, but then I arrived in it. And I'm a little embarrassed about the selfishness of my generation that seems to want to pull everything forward to their benefit at the cost of the future generations. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And, um, Again, we focus a lot on generosity as well. And, and okay. basically what you're describing there and, and your interest is, you know, taking the things that you've learned, the lessons you've learned, the hard knocks that you've faced uh-huh. and, and sharing those now that you're at a stage of life where you can share that knowledge backwards. And I think that's a big deal. I think that's a good thing. Thank you. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good thing for, you know, young guys coming up on the tech side, the crypto side that, that know that, but don't necessarily know the markets all that well. Uh-huh. Um, it's a great thing with these, and we'll kind of get to this a little bit, but social platforms and, and sure. all of this internet that has allowed that knowledge barrier to be broken so that guys like you can, can really share with the world where decades ago. It's amazing. It's amazing. You, I found Twitter about a, a year ago, and I can tell you I've learned as much from that platform as any other source of uh i'm going to say intelligence because there's certainly a lot of unintelligence on uh, on it but a source of intelligence when you're focused if you keep your uh if you don't get engaged with you know some of the you know the entertain yeah, yeah yeah or the entertaining or the, you know that that s posting uh, you know, where people are just doing it because they know that uh, a fight attracts more followers, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, mm-hmm. so, but there is just so much information and yeah, these social media platforms are, are unbelievable, unbelievably powerful, unbelievably important. And then also, you know, th- th- there are times when they can be uh, construed as, uh, as biased and therefore, um, could be a little dangerous too, but we won't go down that route. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and I think that's the awareness. Um, you know, you got, you, you and I are, are not the same age, but we're not, you know, generations apart. Um, and to that point, we can have echo chambers everywhere, Oh yeah. but, but you the value to. that's on social platforms, if you kind of dig into the things that really matter, yeah. it, it can enhance your intelligence. But I'll and, say this too, and this is actually, um, you brought it up uh, in one of your questions and we do have some sort of questions prepared, but it, you know, we don't have a, a script prepared ladies and gentlemen, but one of your questions uh, and my answer was, and I won't say what the question was, but here's my answer is always read research that is counter to your own thesis. Absolutely. Don't, don't read research that gives you uh uh, confirmation bias. Okay. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed right. to be reading stuff that goes against your thesis because no one's ever a hundred percent, right? I mean, that's just impossible and no one can therefore be a hundred percent certain, but you need to adjust your risk portfolio accordingly. And by the way, things change. And if your research is wrong, don't be a knucklehead and sit by it and try and defend a position, work mm-hmm. on exiting that position. And you, you know, you could go flat that position, or even if you've got research, you know, if you've been convinced that you were so wrong that you can flip it to from a long or a short position to a long position. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying, look, you have to keep an open mind. The world changes. Uh, 
you got you know who Leon Cooperman is, I, I oh, imagine, yeah. but he is such a great investor. And he he goes back in history on one thing I saw, and he goes 25 years ago, the top companies were Kmart bankrupt. Uh, and he, he ran through all these companies that were, you know, air, this, there was an airline, a, a, a retailer, a, a, something you know, from every industry, Kodak, of course, you yeah. know, like it was just, and he goes bankrupt, 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 bankrupt. And just don't fall into the uh, trap that things don't change because they do. The world is yeah. a very dynamic place. Uh, creative destruction is the most important part of capitalism. And that's the problem now a little bit is because we are not getting rid of some of these zombie companies. We're supporting me, but creative destruction is so important in reforesting, if you will, having the forest fire, burning out the underbrush that causes the, the bad forest fire, uh, et cetera, uh, for regrowth. And, um, you know, a lot of that we're not having right now. The Fed is trying to protect too many things. Yeah, oh, man, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. A lot. Um, I I agree with uh, most all of that, and, mm -hmm. and it kind of is a good lead in to kind of one of my bigger questions sure. um, that we touched a little bit on. Basically, your whole life, your whole career has happened without technology. You know, you just find. I mean, there's technology, but technology like Twitter, and yes. I think on other podcasts you mentioned that. Um, you didn't see a computer until you got to your first job, you know, so you went all through college without these wonderful machines. And, yeah. and there's a saying, I don't, I don't know that exactly true, but the iPhone has as much technology in it as the computers that put the man on the moon. So oh, that's correct. Yeah, um, that, that is correct. I mean, and, and I actually used that in one of my podcasts, but yeah, just, just, to, so I had graduated McGill university in 1986 and I had never worked on a personal computer because they did not exist. Okay. But mainframe computers, absolutely. Uh, and then 1988 at Cornell, uh, just at the very beginning, I worked on a Macintosh computer before any Canadian had ever worked on a Macintosh because I don't believe Mac was in Canada at that time. So all of these cool things, uh, but reality is yes, uh, you know, they're, you know, floppy disk inserts into uh, IBM uh, 256, uh, if I remember correctly, something like that, 256 or whatever. But um, you, well, technology is uh, uh, evolves very, you know, as we know, uh, the hockey stick. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was just at the very beginning of it, but I had just graduated from university. So you learned on the job. Um, I, I became a pretty, pretty darn good expert in Lotus 123. And I'm nowhere near as good an expert in Excel because I don't have to be because other people do it for me. But man, I could program in Lotus one, two, three, which was unbelievable and macros and all this stuff. So you, you adapt to it. Uh, you have to, but technology, the thing came that I think why I was so myopic is because bond traders had this beautiful machine that was uh, developed by Michael Bloomberg, yep. who was at... Merrill Lynch, and then developed this machine for Merrill Lynch. And it was a bond pricing, primarily a bond pricing tool, but equity guys had it too, because it had nice charting and everything, but it really was a bond pricing tool that replaced these old manual bond pricing calculators. And those calculators themselves had replaced bond books, which were like mm -hmm. phone books that calculated accrued interest uh, on, on, a, on a bond trade, et cetera. Um, you know what? I mean, things change quickly and now you can basically get that. So it's funny. I spent, I don't know, five years on a Bloomberg terminal. Okay. Um, love those things. Oh my um, God. The internet kind of leveled the playing field, but they're still great um, tools and takes me back to uh, early days. We had an insurance company as a client and um, managed some portfolios and they were by hand. Um, oh my at the end of every quarter, Calculating. pulling all the bond, wow. just full gamut for like, I think the portfolio was a thousand positions. Oh, good God. So yeah. basically by the time that in all the details and the pricing and the yield to maturity, yield to call, right. all that kind of stuff. And so essentially by the time they would get done, it would be the next quarter, let's, you know, or, or, or weeks, months go by. But then I, you got, I'm going to say, then you, you hired some smart intern and had him program that all into their portfolio on Bloomberg, right? And I did. Yeah, that, that was, I did. I was not you the did? smart guy, but oh, okay. I said, I said, guys, what are you doing? I can yeah. 
do this with Bloomberg mnemonics and build yeah. this out. And, yeah. uh, boy. so spent a couple of weeks and poof, there it is. Yeah. And, uh, I moved on and about a year later, they emailed me and are like, Hey, um, can you fix this? This is not working. <laughs> so, can you imagine being an insurance company and not knowing what your, your average duration was of your whole portfolio? Yes, like, that. can you imagine not knowing your pricing uh, sensitivity to change in interest rates due to duration and convexity? Uh, you know, just not having that, like, can you, and then I'll take it one step further. Can you imagine being either a policy holder mm -hmm. or a, unit holder or a shareholder of that uh, particular insurance company, like that's technology, that's what's called operating risk. Like that's right. really, that's a risk in the business, operational risk. Right. Exactly. And that, so that's kind of really how the framed questions start. You know, I talk to these guys every day and they said, Hey, I'm having to go to a page and pull this down. I was like, for mm -hmm. what? We can dump all of that. And, yeah. And so nice. well done. You know, we, we did that, but I think, that's a good segue into, okay. you know, the markets in general, investors, CNBC, right. traders, people in wealth management, whatever, so caught up in the price of Bitcoin or various crypto assets that they lose sight of the technology. Okay. And so these crypto networks were for, for me, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion, what the value of them is the ability to put that information out there securely, allow access to people that maybe need access to that data, and then kind of break down these silos of data okay. so that it can sit securely and be accessible. And uh, it's kind of the same way that Bloomberg did. So that's perfect. And 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 so Bloomberg was a centralized, right? Mm -hmm. Bloomberg was 100% centralized. Yep. It was so valuable. They sold subscription to their subscriptions to their centralized database, essentially and pricing mm -hmm. and pricing mechanism or pricing uh, uh, methodology. Um, so here's, here's what I do know. Okay, so 2016, I had heard about Bitcoin. Um, I'll tell your listeners this, since, 2000, since 1988, I'd been looking for a solution to the Fiat Ponzi because again, I worked at Canada's largest financial institution and it was insolvent. And I said, how is it that, share, that uh, depositors have confidence in the banking system when it can be, uh, when it can be insolvent. Uh, right now it was insolvent 1988. Uh, and I said, well, obviously because it's too big to fail, it has an implied put by the government. How does the government do that? It can print money. I said, wow, this is a bit of a, you know, you don't graduate from an MBA understanding this. Uh, they don't go out and say, this is what's wrong with our system, <laughs> okay? Henry Ford said a hundred years ago, he goes, if, if the American public understood uh, what, uh, how, how, traditional banking actually works, he goes, there'd be a revolution. Okay. And the reality is banking is extremely levered, meaning they only have about four cents of every dollar that they lend. Only four cents of it is actually risk absorbing equity capital. The other 96 cents is depositors money and subordinate loan. And, um, you know, if I'm the depositor and I'm, I got my savings in your bank and 96 sense of every loan is made. And if you make one bad loan, I could lose my deposit. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and you think about that or my savings. So that's, that's a, that's a big nugget to, to get over. So I've been looking for the solution to the Fiat Ponzi since 1988. And I, I need your listeners to understand I'm calling it a Fiat Ponzi, not because I want it to fail. I just want people to understand that it is a horrible store of value, okay? You should not be keeping your savings in a currency called fiat, which is programmed to, to debase. It's mathematical certainty. I could run through the math with you if I want, if you want. But fast forward to when 2016, oh yeah, I heard about Bitcoin. Someone introduces it to me. They want me to, uh, to be a seed capital investor in their company that wanted to bring a Bitcoin fund to a uh, regulated stock exchange in Canada. So, so well, yeah, I've heard about Bitcoin, but as everyone generally says, oh, it's, it's gotta be a first, like Mt. Gox, all this hacking. Uh, but then he, you know, he, he, brings me down the rabbit hole a bit. And then the thing that sold me, and I don't know if your listeners have ever looked at this, or even if you have, uh, have you seen tradeblock.com? And the it's the blockchain in action and showing the, the various uh, blocks that are mined every uh, 10 minutes, who the miner is, what the statistics were, 
how many transactions went in, what the fees were, uh, at the mempool, you can see these things flashing across the screen, which are transactions taking place around the world. And you, you'll, you'll see it and be like, okay, $18 and 50 cents, I guess that was like a lunch. And then, you know, $300 and then a couple of hundred thousand dollars, then 4 million bucks and then, you know, lesser. And, but I'm like, wait a minute, what is this that's happening? And as an engineer visualized, I said, this is a network that's functioning. It's a living, breathing ecosystem with no, you know, there's no centralized control. I said, oh my God, I've been looking for this for, from 1988 to 2016 for almost 30 years. I've been looking for that solution because of the 21 million hard cap supply and the ability to transfer value from one person to another without an intermediary i.e. a bank or an, a credit card company or anything like that. So we could get into the, the technological side, which I'm not good at, but we can also get into why I believe it is such a great uh, investment opportunity or a hedging mechanism. And, and that's, uh, that's kind of that gap, right? The, the area in between. We have some really good tech guys and we have some really good traditional financial market guys and there's this just missing gap that's of fair. how the two communicate. We've That's seen fair. this play out in the corporate world, the business world over the last decade, where you know the business guys that don't understand how maybe AWS works, but right. they can communicate to other companies and business, hey, we have this solution that allows yes. you to kind of build right. the infrastructure, mm -hmm. put it in the cloud, and you guys can do work and these guys over here are going to build it all. Like they can't talk to you because it may not go over so well, but you know, that progress. And so we're seeing that basically come to the banking side of things. And so it feels scary. It looks scary because the pipes are literally being rewritten while okay. at the same time we have all these uh, things between countries going on in the monetary system and, it really brings me back to, um, you know, if you think about Great Depression, bad time, but what happened after, right? Evolution of man, they, they, they struggle, they figure it out, and they pave a new path forward. Great innovation. And at that time, a lot of people kind of question what is money? You had gold, you had fiat. We kind of sit in that same boat today. Got all so this. There's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you... Uh, to a statement by a gentleman by the name of Ross Stevens, who is the chairman of NYDIG, New York Digital Investment Group. Mm -hmm. I'm going to paraphrase his shareholder, a statement in his shareholder letter, which I think is a thing of beauty from an engineer and you're an engineer, you, you, you'd understand um, that uh, money has always been a technology for storing the value of your work or energy or time expended today for consumption in the future, right? And that's what money is, it, or a store of value is, is you want your hard work that uh, you expend today not to be debased in the future so that 30 years down the road, when you want that same value of energy or time that you, ex that you expended to be worth equivalent amount of energy, right? And that's what money is, a technology for storing that value. Now, uh, gold has been uh, a proxy for that. Fiat currencies are horrible because they get debased. So think of this. When I was 18 years old, uh, I had a, uh, a summer job where I was uh, doing roofing. And I promise you that that was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, uh, hot summer. Uh, I may have made probably on a given day, if I was lucky, 35 Dollars, And that's not even a consider a, on a tax basis. I made 35 bucks 30 years ago. All right. And I promise you the value of my time in improving the value of that house was worth way more than 35 bucks. But that's what I earned in terms of my energy. And um, uh, so 35 bucks, 30 years fast forward to today, if I actually needed that 35 bucks, and I kept it in fiat, it might be worth, I don't know, like $4.70. And I'm telling you, man, I, I put a lot more than $4.70 worth of energy time uh, sweat into that roof, okay, and on a daily basis or those roofs. And, and so that's just the technology that, that you need to consider what is a, a proper store of value. 
Um, I'll, I'll reiterate, I don't want the fiat system to fail. Uh, fiat is good for uh, avoiding the need for barter. Um, it's good for inter-country inter trade. Uh, it's good for the ability to, uh, when the Fed can print money to shield or to protect the population from otherwise uh, horrible events like the great financial crisis. Uh, but if you keep socializing those losses, then it just, it, it builds on itself and you, be, you get a debt balloon that cannot be solved. And that's unfortunately where we are with fiat, but it doesn't mean I want it to fail. It just means you need to have a parallel system of a store of value. And I believe that most beautiful store of value is Bitcoin. I, I own gold. I'm not telling your, your investors not to own gold. But Bitcoin, in my opinion, is so superior in all things I'm looking for, uh, divisibility, transferability, portability, uh, you know, inability to uh, counterfeit, uh, you know, the blockchain, decentralized, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's why I own Bitcoin. And I believe everybody needs to own a portion of Bitcoin. I'm not going to talk Ethereum. I don't know that much about the DeFi uh, side of the business, but if you think about how, how you would seg segregate the two, uh, Bitcoin is to protect yourself against the uh, legacy central banking system. That's for Bitcoin. And then Ethereum will protect yourself uh, against the disintermediation of the traditional banking system, not central banking, but just the banking system, the investment banking and all that side of the business. And both of them are very exciting, uh, but my focus is on the Bitcoin side because uh, I am a, I'm a credit guy at heart and the credit situation is pretty darn ugly uh, for every single fiat nation out there. And I think of Bitcoin as insurance against fiat debasement and ultimately for some countries, fiat default. Yeah, no, that's perfect. The, the quote uh, by Ross Stevens, um, absolute beauty. Uh, it's a gem. There's a lot in that. A um, couple of things just on, on that. I think, you know, we talked about transfer of value and money as a technology and, you know, money over thousands of years has just been numerous different things. And uh -huh. it seems that every 100, 200 years that the base commodity of a civilization or the base commodity of what's most needed across the world changes. And, and most of our lives operate off data and, and, yeah. and fiat and, and gold. Gold is a great source in, in really scarce time. Um, but crypto networks operate better off data than our current forms of money. And I think it feels like a lot of times psychologically we get lost in this, this, this unit that we're using is the value. And really the real value comes on either end of the transaction. Very well. Said. So, yeah. yeah. And, and um, can I just add, like yeah. everyone thinks they may be making money on their house but you're not really making the money in your house. It's just the value of the unit of account is debasing. So you need more of those dollars to reflect the value of your house. Okay. Right. Um, and that's, a, that's a, a difficulty for people that are used to thinking of everything in a unit of account that is programmed to debase over time purely because money printing is the only solution for a debt, D-E-B-T spiral that we are in. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And, and we talk about, you know, if you view it that way, money is just a tool. Oh, yeah. It's, so the tool can be anything. You got to have the right tool for the job. So you may have various ones. Um, and we talk about it as five uses of money. You can give it away, spend it, save it, invest it, um, pay your debts, pay your taxes. And, and that's really all you can do. But the, the value in those things is, is how you allocate it to your life so that it's used in a way that makes you happy, helps your community grow. It's not how many of these units can I keep and hold. It's really the allocation distribution of the value that stems from those. So um, if you look at it that way, I think guys with your background are perfect because I kind of understand this real value because you've sat in credit markets, 
yeah. done the dirty work. You've uh, seen the risk that are associated with super volatile assets, misunderstood arbitrage opportunities. Uh -huh. um, so can you, if that makes sense, can you talk to that in the way that maybe um, traditional wealth management people may be missing that link of how you can still have risky things uh -huh. in an unrisky manner and help your overall wealth yeah. grow, which is generating more value so that you can allocate it to things that you find valuable. Excellent. Yeah. So um, a great question. So I have dealt with some, uh, it, when I was a, a, a hedge fund portfolio manager, um, you know, these are, these are excellent questions. And, and the reality is uh, you should always strive to get portfolio diversification, which is uh, defined as you guys know, whether it's a correlated or non-correlated asset, the volatility of that asset. Let's start with the second part, the volatility of the assets. So one thing I always hear about, oh, this is horrible. Bitcoin has such, or crypto, let's, I'm going to talk Bitcoin, has such high volatility. Well, I'm going to quote Bill Miller here, a famous US portfolio manager. He goes, look, very simply, volatility is the price of return. Okay. If you have a non-volatile asset, chances are you will have a very low return asset. Exactly. Um, Mark Yusko was just on a, a CNBC this morning and he laid it out uh, really, really well. He goes, uh, look, Bitcoin is actually just as volatile as Amazon stock. And he quoted a statistic, I don't have it here. It's 80% annualized vol. Uh, okay, so if that's true, uh, then should you have sold uh, Amazon or being worried about Amazon every time there was a drawdown and he ran through the drawdowns that have happened over the life. And he goes then, so when was the proper time to sell Amazon? And his answer was great. Never. The proper answer was never until, you know, I'm not saying that's going to forecast the future either, but um, the point is just because something's volatile doesn't mean you should not own it. You should, you need to have it according to your risk tolerance. And sometimes two assets that are volatile will work against each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you can be long the volatility of a stock and uh, uh, meaning you own it, but there are other hedges that can dampen that volatility on a portfolio basis, as you know. And, and coming from a credit background, and this is what a lot of people don't understand. When you have, when you own credit, i.e. if you're exposed to a high yield junk mutual fund, you're actually short volatility, which is why high yield bonds tend to get destroyed when vol increases because you've shorted something that volatility spikes. And over time, as everyone knows, volatility is a, it decays, but it never, you know, it's those times when you're shorted and it spikes to, you know, because of a crisis that, that everyone gets uh, really destroyed. So in the construction of a portfolio, I'm just going to quote a Yale University study that says Bitcoin can actually diversify portfolio risk up to using a, a weighting of up to six to 8% of your portfolio. Now, look, that's a huge number. Okay. And I would just encourage people, if you own zero, you're actually taking more risk than if you own some. You need to own some because if Bitcoin goes to the anywhere near some of the prices I think it can go to, you're going to be awful mad that you didn't expose yourself to this volatility. Okay. But my point now is this volatility right now is all a rounding error anyway, compared to where I think the price of Bitcoin could go. I'm not 100% certain of, but I know with greater than zero, probability, there's a chance of my outcome coming true. So therefore, you got to get off zero. Do you go right to six to 8%? Ken, I'm going to let you decide that on behalf of your clients. <laughs> um, I know that my exposure is higher than that, but it takes a long time to get comfortable at that exposure. And one of your questions to me was, how do I live with that? And sometimes I just go, you know what? The best Bitcoin that I own right now is not actually on any exchange or anywhere that I look at the value of those particular Bitcoin in a portfolio. I have them in cold storage. I have them there not for me to use probably in my lifetime, but I have them there for my three children, just in case this insurance policy that I think I may need needs to be cashed in or will be the ultimate uh insurance policy to own. So I do own some Bitcoin 
in a safe. I certainly own a little bit on a wallet to tinker around with. I, I, I encourage your clients to view the beauty of being able to transfer value from a wallet to another account in, I've sent money to New Zealand, to an Aboriginal tribe in New Zealand. Um, That's in awesome. 10 minutes, it, it settles in 10 minutes. If I tried to do that with my local bank, I mean, <laughs> if you've ever sent, if you've ever sent an international wire, wire transfer, you know how painful it is. It's like, it's almost crazy. And if you it's, get the address of the bank wrong, the, the receiving bank by one letter, it's up to, it's your fault. Like I'm fi- finding out fault. where to put, finding out where to put all the codes and the swift codes oh, and the it's other crazy, codes. Right? It's, crazy. It's, it's crazy. So then yeah. I would just say, and then the final thing is I do own Bitcoin in the equivalent of my IRA in Canada. Do I trade it? Absolutely. But trading is in my blood. I've done it for 30 years. Um, so I'm a hodler. I'm a partial hodler. I have a core position in Bitcoin that I will never go below. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that core position is growing. And it's not like I'm really always trimming that off either. Like I'm just happy I bought it at a price and I know I'm prepared for it to go to zero. But I really think there's a bigger chance that it goes to the numbers that I think it could go to. And therefore, I don't want to trade that. I'm not going to be an Amazon trader. I'm going to have that exposure. I'm going to, I, I'm going to try and uh, compartmentalize where my risk is. I always traded core positions, though, when I was a trader at a hedge fund. Why? Well, because markets get ahead of themselves sometimes. Uh, you like to think you're good. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm a good trader, but I did not blow up, which perhaps is a good mark of a trader is, uh, you know, I, I manage risk accordingly. So that's how I, how I approach it. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. And, and I think the volatility component, if I can just say, um, is a very important, uh, thing. Uh, for me, uh, I learned volatility through options, um, years and years of trading them and, and, you know, it's kind of a three-year path. And then the light bulb yes. hits and you kind of get kicked around for a while and you do everything wrong possible. But the, the, what you learn about volatility, assuming that you learn it, um, it's you can use it in any aspect of your life. You can use it with your boss. You can use it with your kids. You can okay. use it with your wife. Because so, uh, Help me out here. I, that, this is something I've never heard. So how do you do <laughs> Because <laughs> everything has a probability. So... So did you say probability or volatility? Well, well I guess vol- the two vo- that, okay, yeah, I, yeah, get yeah, you, yeah. I get you. So the so standard you, deviation, basically yeah, the standard so, deviation of your uh, of your outcome. Okay. Right. So if if you go and you have a big question to ask your boss uh-huh. and the visual signs are he might not be or she might not be in the best of moods, he's probably highly volatile at that moment. So the probability <laughs> that you get positive feedback or okay. that you're... It, so here's you know, a valuable, this, this has been very valuable for me. Okay. So yeah. see, I've never sort of looked at it as, uh, as that type of calculation, but yeah, listen, if you're, uh, if you're going into a distribution that has wicked long tails, you better, oh, but that's on, on the one side though, but, or step in because yes. this is what Bitcoin is. Okay. Right. To the Bitcoin other is asymmetric. It can't, it will, it won't go below zero, but if it goes again, and I'm going to throw out the number just to get your listeners thinking that I do have a glue bag on. And I promise you, I'm not wearing a glue bag here, you guys. Um, I think Bitcoin has a better than zero chance of going to over $2 million of Bitcoin, 2 million US dollars per Bitcoin. I won't give you a time, but I'll give you a target. Or if you ask me then to give you a time, I'll just say over time, Bitcoin's going higher. How about that? So, so like, but I think there's a chance that it goes to $2 million of Bitcoin and it doesn't have to be in my uh, lifetime, but I, I am confident within the lifetimes of my children that it will get there. So, and, and this is a key, this is a key thing that I really wanted you to talk about because you make it make perfect sense because the average person here's two million dollars i need to go buy today everything i have chips in this thing's going to two million that's kind of the wrong approach but the way you way explain the wrong, way, way wrong yeah, approach yeah you, your expected value calculation if you can talk about that maybe break it down a little bit because it makes a lot of sense and it actually if i understood it correctly the first time i heard it actually it it, it favors the probability of zero over oh, yeah. 2 million. Well, let's do that. So let's just run through it. So no, I, I, 
a, a probability distribution is continuous, which means it's a, you know, there's not, it's not two distinct outcomes yep. uh, for most things. Like when you flip a coin, it's, it's, it's one or the other, the coin, there's a probability the coin lands on its edge and stays on its edge, but that's almost infinitely small. Right. So mm -hmm. that's a binary outcome, but uh, a distribution like a bell-shaped distribution or whatever is what most uh, uh, statistical uh, outcomes are. And let's just say that uh, Bitcoin is a probability distribution that's continuous with a, a, a long right-hand side tail. That's what it is. But in order to analyze it, let's just break that down into a binary distribution. That means just a, one of two outcomes, okay? And you can calculate pretty easily a, uh, an expected value outcome on a binary distribution because all you have to do is take the probability times the end price uh, of the two, of the two uh, scenarios and then add them up. So let's, I'm going to propose this to you. If, you give, if I give you a 95% probability that Bitcoin is worth zero, would you give me the 5% probability that Bitcoin goes to my target price of $2 million or higher? And I think that's a pretty fair trade-off that most people would take. Uh, some people like Peter Schiff will never give me that. He's 100% certain it's going to zero. So I'm not even going to argue <laughs> with him. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm actually, I want to argue with he's, rational people, not irrational people. He's the fat tail. He, he, let's just put it this way. He <laughs> is conflicted. It's disappointing. Um, but uh, when you're a gold bug, you get 95% of the way there. But if you can't take that extra 5% mm -hmm. because you're, you're, you're running a gold business, I, I can, you know, you, you got to take that with a grain of salt. So here, yeah. let, let's run through my probability or my binary distribution. So what's 95% times zero is zero. And then 5% times 2 million is $100,000 today. That's what that binary probability distribution uh, is worth. And you'll say, well, what you have to present value that. And I'll say, well, at least grant me the fact that it could be 2 million or higher. Okay. Because I actually think 2 million is low and I, I'm going to tell you how I get to that price. But again, so you run that, that expected value analysis. I've given you a 95% chance it's worth zero, which I actually think we passed the point where Bitcoin would ever go to be worth zero, but let's just even break it down that simply. So, so that's how I've always looked at, uh, at risk in my, in my career. Uh, it's like in bonds, um, Bonds are asymmetric returns to the downside. Bond guys are, are very pessimistic, right? Because usually what happens in bonds is you lend money at 100 cents on the dollar. I'm talking corporate bonds. And those, that price of that bond may increase a little bit. Like it could go to $110 because your coupon is higher than uh, the true risk uh, profile of the company over time. It's grown into its risk profile, if you will. But more often than not, what happens is that price goes to the lower side of 100 cents on the dollar because bad things happen uh, or their risk profile hasn't improved and the bonds trade at less than 100 cents on the dollar. Um, it's very hard for most bond guys to buy more of, more of the debt at a lower price than when they originally got into it. Uh, some of them turn into sellers, uh, which then crystallizes their loss on the bad investment. Some of them try to hold it to maturity, but if it does mature, uh, if it's gone in lower price, all it meant is you made the wrong investment at the outset. You didn't get actually rewarded for the true risk that you were taking. So if, uh, go back to 1988. I'm at the Royal Bank of Canada. We own over a billion dollars of Mexican debt. Okay. It's trading at 70, excuse me, at 25 cents on the dollar. So we would have to write off over $750 million of exposure. I come up with the right Brady plan option. And I say to my CFO, I'm like, geez, you know, I think these things are actually good value here. I think we should buy more. Well, that sort of goes over like a fart in church, right? At, uh, at, with a bank because, uh, you, you forgot to check the volatility on him at the moment. Right? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> or they just don't have it in their, in their head. Well, no, thank you very much. I've made it. I've made as much of the loan at a hundred cents on the dollar. I want to make, <laughs> I don't want any to make any more at 25 cents on the dollar. You know what I mean? And the reality is the price of those loans actually did go up and through, a uh, hundred cents on the dollar. It would have been a monumental uh, way of uh, uh, of uh, sort of uh, taking a making a good situation out of a bad situation. Um, again, getting back to Bitcoin though, um, or other crypto assets, but I'm going to just focus on Bitcoin. Uh, why do I think it could go to two million bucks? It's quite simple. 
I'm going to fast forward. Bitcoin, in my mind, from an engineering perspective, is digital energy. I think there's a fairly good chance that someday all energy, meaning oil and natural gas, gets priced in Bitcoin. Uh, the rationale for that is to think about Russia, who's being paid U.S. dollars for their valuable natural resources, which is a debasing asset. Why are you selling some valuable natural resources for an asset that's going to be debasing? Uh, well, just because we had a petrodollar arrangement with, uh, with Saudi Arabia to protect them, Saudi Arabia would take payment for their oil in U.S. dollars in return for the U.S. protecting Saudi Arabia, right? So Russia falls in it like, hey, I don't want these. I don't want this U.S. dollar. Why don't I start taking Bitcoin? And I think that over time, Bitcoin could become the de facto reserve asset of the world, not reserve currency, the reserve asset of the world when energy is priced in Bitcoin. So at least grant me the, the, the thought that that's a possibility. And therefore, I'm going to tell you how much of the total global financial assets I think Bitcoin could, could capture. And total global financial assets right now are approximately US $900 trillion. So that includes all debt. It includes real estate. It includes gold, fine art, equities, um, you name it, that's $900 trillion dollars. And by the way, that number is from before the COVID crisis. So it's actually higher now because we've printed so much other debt. A little few extra dollars in the system. Okay, so there's $900 trillion. And if Bitcoin became uh, the global reserve asset of the world, do you think it's possible it could get 5% of that $900 trillion? I think that's pretty possible, right? What's 5% of $900 trillion? It's $45 trillion. $45 trillion divided by $21 million. There's your number that gets Bitcoin to worth over $2 million of Bitcoin. And 5% is low in that outcome. I think it would be more like 15 or 20%. Well, then you do the math and you'll see where Bitcoin could go to if that scenario unfolds. Again, it's not 100% certain, but it's also better than a zero chance that that could happen. So you need to manage that risk. Yeah, that, that, I mean, you take that logic, um, totally makes sense. And when you explain it that way, you actually are saying, I could be almost 100% wrong uh -huh. and still get some benefit. And, it's an insurance policy. Yeah. When you think about it, right? Like I think about it as an insurance policy as well on the credit calamities of the world. And you don't go out and buy fire insurance on your house when your house is already burning, right? You need to own right. that insurance before the fire has started. And mm -hmm. so while it's an insurance comp, excuse me, an insurance contract or insurance, uh, uh, like think of it as an insurance policy, it's also a store of value. It's digital energy. It's the value of your time, work, and energy today that will be reflected at some value in the future. But given that there's only 21 million of them for the whole world to share, uh, there's a chance that that price will at least maintain its uh, store of value properties. It, and that's a critical point. Um, I think in a lot of conversations or just talking to anybody about investing, um, the, the point that you don't go buy insurance once your house is on fire, you buy it years in advance and you hmm. pay in years worth of insurance without any claims or just minor ones here or there that that aren't disaster and from an investor standpoint um the, the downside of all these social networks and media and tv and all this stuff that we talked about at the beginning that it was such a uh -huh. great thing the downside uh -huh. is if you fall victim to oh man they're talking about this thing on TV constantly. I've got to have it now. Well, that probably is not, in a lot of cases, the right moment. Okay. It was the months or years leading in. And then even when they get super bullish on, you know, if you think back kind of, I don't know, November to February of, of 20 and 21, okay. CNBC's nonstop on bitcoin so it feeds it because it's yeah. a, it's a it's a uh it's an entertainment network right but at and, that point your house is on fire uh actually actually here's the neat thing i'm gonna take issue with that no because your house <laughs> will be when your house is on fire it will be trading at like five hundred thousand dollars not fifty thousand dollars okay so my point is a lot of these ones now are a rounding error whether yep. it was sixty thousand or forty thousand i'm not smart enough to tell you what it, you know why it, it was yeah, a yeah yeah 
if it could go to 2 million bucks, these are rounding errors, you guys, you got to get some. And the best way to do that, rather than trying to get, go all in all at once is you just mm-hmm. time, you don't time the market rather you just dollar cost. Average that, that, and that's the point I'm kind of making when you feel great about something from an investment standpoint, unless you're just super early, a lot of times the emotional side oh, yeah. pushes you in when you do really shouldn't ever, in. you need to remove emotion from yeah. every trade, whether it's a buy or a sell. Okay. Yes. Yeah. You need to remove emotion and bring on calculation and thorough understanding of what you're doing. If you're using leverage, that increases the chance that emotion is going to play a part in your uh, what, what the decision you make and whether it's right or wrong, because what does leverage do? Well, it enhances returns or losses. And generally people feel like they're studs when, you know, they've made a good call on the market and they feel less studly when uh, the market goes against them. And believe me, the mark of a great trader is uh, firstly to reverse positions that they've made a mistake on. Okay. I can't remember if we talked about this in the, in the, up in the outset or or just in the it, the intro that Kane and I had always re- if you learn something different reverse your position uh manage risk accordingly don't get wed to a position that uh that could wheel you off the floor basically okay then the second and perhaps equally as important uh, we talked about the emotional side is uh it's it's a it's a calculation if you are you can never be a hundred percent correct on all your trades you're going to be wrong on some of your investments it's just the way the world works no one is a hundred percent you know even in baseball a 400 hitter was like the most incredible outcome you know what i mean so you just got to understand what the system will give you and most people sell their loser, excuse me, sell their winners and keep their losers. That in itself is a losing strategy, right? You're supposed to sell your losers and keep your winners, but human nature is to do the opposite. Why? Because you have a confirmation bias that you actually, I want to prove that I actually made a good trade rather than uh, I'm selling my bad trades and keeping my good trades. So you know what, guys, uh, it's tough. Having done this for 30 years, I tell you, it's as much a, I, I actually say this, Kane, I wish I had taken a little, a few more courses in psychology and not as yes. many courses as in engineering. Uh, but then you teach yourself along the way. And the only thing I did for 30 years is I didn't blow up, meaning, hey, yeah. I lost money on a lot of trades, let me tell you, but none of them cost me my career. And if you look at my, uh, not that I'm pitching it because I, I don't have it to show anybody, but over time, I offset my losses with winners that uh, compensated for your losers and the returns were, uh, uh, you know, I was proud of the returns. And that's key, the econometrics um, side of things, um, just, just kind of understanding that everything's really a choice whether you a calculated choice i think you, na- you nailed it i i've never thought of this about going to your boss when they're in a volatile situation like to me <laughs> i would just bust through the door anyway because i'm volatile right. all the time right. so i'm just but, <laughs> but you have a background in risk management so if it blows yeah. up you're like okay it's time to abort this trade didn't go well or there you if go it goes like, well, so you no I, but i never I, I was never quite that <laughs> smart to be able to to analyze human emotion in terms of a uh, volatility spectrum i like that a lot yeah, um yeah. you know I mean, and think the about worst time here, here's what i'll just summarize with this okay um when the perception of risk is lowest actual risk is highest Mm -hmm. and when the perception of risk is highest meaning everything's melting down price earnings ratios are are as low as they've ever been actual risk is lowest right you need to play that you need to understand that when everyone's feeling good about things hey guess what the next move is probably risk, you know, risk increases, like it's, it's, it's like a balloon, Uh, you know, things inflate and deflate in the, in the, in the system though, it's leverage, leverage overconfidence is reflected in increased leverage. And then when confidence goes out of the system, leverage unwinds are the painful part. People in a leverage unwind, if you're at a hedge fund and your margin clerk is telling you we're taking down leverage, that just means you need to sell some stuff, okay, to raise cash. And 
most of the time you don't sell what you should, you sell what you can because everyone's doing the same thing. And what you're really doing is crystallizing, hopefully some of your winners still, but it was one of the hardest things that ever happened to me is in, in, in 2008, working at this hedge fund, our performance was actually amazing. And we were still getting redeemed from some clients who were fund to fund clients. And we asked them, well, why are you redeeming us? And they go, it's simple. I need to get, I need to show people that I actually made money on something because all my other guys are getting crushed. And I'm like, oh God, what a horrible business to be in because I'm getting <laughs> redeemed because other people are doing such a poor job. You know what I mean? So like, it, and, but this is what happens, right? And it's, 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 you just got to understand these things come around like a bus, leverage, leverage, leverage. Okay. The leverage unwind. And I've written a paper on this. It's called Contagion. And this is where it's about credit risk and it's focused on contagion. This is why it's so important to have these insurance policies uh, because you just never know when you're going to need them. And uh, by the way, uh, I do value, put a, a trading value or an intrinsic value on Bitcoin using a credit default swap analysis. The important thing is you have to understand that Bitcoin could, and I, I say this, could absolutely change generational wealth for people. And most of your clients are probably pretty well-to-do, which I applaud you and, and, and all the clients for doing such a good job of creating wealth. But you also need to protect that wealth. And what happens if you are steadfast against this asset that becomes the reserve asset of the world over time? Rather than just saying, you know what, maybe this clown from Canada has a point that you should have some exposure to this just in case. And by the way, in my case, I'm not saying just in case. I'm like, guys, I'm really thinking this is the best trade I've ever seen in my life. That's for me. Foss can say that because Foss can talk to Foss. I'm not telling your people to think that it's the best trade you've ever heard, but I've done it for 30 years and I don't throw that out you know, uh, just throw away. It's not a throwaway comment. I honestly believe it is the be best asymmetric trade I have ever seen in my life. And it actually is less risky now at the current price of whatever it is, 40,000, than it was when I first got involved in Bitcoin at about, you know, sub $1,000 US. It's better now. Why? Mm -hmm. It's five years down the road. It's proven its worth. The halving has happened. The system is still functioning very well, by the way. The difficulty adjustment in Bitcoin is one of the most brilliant engineering solutions I've ever seen in my life. And I just tell you, look, um, this is the future, in my opinion. It's digital. What's the Which way is the world going? Well, digitization. I, I can yep. go and pick up a calculator. I, I did this the other night for uh, a podcast. I think I was doing it with a guy in Australia. But I have this calculator on my desk over there. Have you guys ever heard of what's called a Curta calculator? So this was a mechanical calculator. And it looks like you should look it up on the, I have it over there. I just don't want to take my headphones off and lose you guys. It looks like a, a salt grind or a pepper grinder. And it's a mechanical calculator that was designed by a, a a Jewish, an Austrian Jew that was in the uh, concentration camps. And they say that if uh, he had taken this technology to the Germans and, and shown them what he was doing, they would have been able potentially to shift the balance of power in the war due to their V2 rockets and the gyroscopes that were uh, guiding the V2 rockets, okay? So um, this guy, Kurt Herzog, I think his name is Kurt. This is a mechanical calculator. Now he developed this after being freed by the allied forces in 1945. He went on to found a company that produced these things. And my granddad had one uh, that I found in, in, in his office cabinet but my granddad was dead and I had no idea what this thing was all I knew it was pretty cool but like oh, it had numbers and, and little gadgets on it and you calculated well look that was less than a hundred years ago that's how people that was the top of the line mechanical calculator because digitization didn't didn't exist but how fast are things changing so so that's all I'm saying is you can never be 100% certain. You look back in history for some, some pretty good uh, uh, guidelines of how to manage risk. And then you realize how fast things can change. And I think that was a really good, um, probably just a spot to kind of wrap it up. Okay. Um, 
the the component around when things feel really great regardless of your mix or your assets that's when you should stand prepared that your risk is probably at the highest and when things it is feel it's when really bad it's yeah. when volatility in the market is lowest yeah. right but what happens yeah. where are the spikes Vol doesn't go through zero. Vol is lower bound. Vol tends to stop at around 12%. I'm not sure we'll ever get back down to around 12% again, but that's where it stopped historically. Look, I mean, if you look at the spikes in Vol, that's why long-term capital failed in 1998. They were selling volatility to the street. They had two Nobel Prize winners there. These guys were knuckleheads. They were selling Vol based on six years of data. Oh my God, we're at the 99th percent confidence interval based on six years of data. Too bad we've got a oh, hundred years of markets. Isn't well, it's horrible. <laughs> but they did not have a hundred years of vol, I guess. So options yeah, all. Yeah. Um, who who knows? Look, if things happen, and not only did they use bad data or just too too uh, short a time frame data, they levered themselves 90, 90 to one. Okay, so there's just it was a comedy of errors by the smartest men in the room because that's what the book was called, right? When genius failed. Yep. Well, boy, they weren't geniuses, okay? They might have been academic geniuses, but they were market imbeciles, okay? And who were the other imbeciles? The guys on the other side of the trade that were purchasing insurance from them, from an insurance company that was absolutely certain to fail. So there was knuckleheads going all around. It was the Wall Street banks that were purchasing insurance from a company that could never make good on the insurance policy. The best thing about Bitcoin, there's no counterparty risk. I don't have to rely on a Goldman Sachs to be alive to collect my insurance policy. Uh, Goldman would have failed if AIG had been allowed to fail and AIG wasn't allowed to fail because Goldman couldn't fail because Hank Paulson used to work at Goldman that used to work, you know, AIG. And so look, don't let this happen again. Uh, The perception of risk right now is somewhat low, but that's artificial as well. We have an elephant in the room. It's called the Fed manipulating everything. And uh, that's not how capitalism uh, survives long-term, okay? You cannot continue to socialize losses. Uh, it just does not work. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, a lot, uh, hopefully, for listeners to, to learn, to think about, to consume. Um, Greg, why don't you tell everybody where they could find you online, obviously sure. on Twitter. Uh, Greg's a great resource, a lot of knowledge, um, very passionate about uh, just the let's call it the monetary space in general Thank um, you, Will. and how that's changing. And then maybe um, if there's, so from your path relatively later in life, technology coming across Bitcoin, something you'd look for forever comes later in life. How it may be a little bit, whether it resource book or just ideas on if that's you, regardless of whether you're young or old, um, how to, kind of cross that big uh, kind of gargantuan learning gap that feels like it's so, there and maybe is a hurdle. What a great uh, way to end. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with my last line first. Thanks for having me. Okay. So that was yeah, awesome. Thanks for joining. Um, you know, it's awesome. a pleasure. So yes, um, you know, I, I, I love to try and impart wisdom, not that I'm a wise person, but uh, I have lived uh, a certain path that, uh, that, that not that many people have experienced. Um, I have written this paper and I, I hope that you'll attach it to this podcast yeah. or for yeah. your, uh, and it's basically titled why every single fixed income manager needs to own Bitcoin as per portfolio insurance. And it's a long read. It's a 40 odd pages or more. Uh, there's different parts. It's sometimes there's some good chuckles in it about my experiences, um, which are all real life. Uh, don't you, you gotta need, you, you need to separate academics from, uh, uh, real life markets. Okay. Uh, that's why academics tend to be really poor portfolio managers because they think something, Oh, well, it has to go this way. The price earnings multiple is just way too cheap. Well, guess what? If you're being redeemed, it doesn't, you're not selling price earnings multiples. You're selling something that can raise cash because you're being redeemed. Okay. It's that simple. Again, uh, markets, when they unravel, things get ridiculous, but, um, I can be found on Twitter at Foss, Greg Foss. I'm actually honored to be presenting at the Bitcoin conference in a, in a, in a week or two in Miami. Uh, I have this paper. The paper is because I truly believe that bonds right now, 
are one, I can't say 100%. I'm highly confident bonds are the worst investment I've ever seen in my 30 years of managing credit risk. Okay. That includes all bonds, high yield, trading at right around 4%. Do some math on that. Sub, subtract out your, your, uh, your management fees on the, on, the, uh, on the bonds and then insert a default probability uh, and expected loss on that. And you're getting negative real returns and probably negative nominal returns after defaults going forward, okay? It's the most retarded thing, but why do people buy high yield bonds right now? Well, because the Fed has a backstop on high yield bonds, apparently. Guys, this is so dangerous, some of the stuff that's happening right now. So if you do, do me a favor, understand what a bond contract is. It's a fiat contract that's programmed to debase, which means if you borrow or if you're lending somebody $100 today for a period of 10 years, you you may get your $100 back, but it'll be worth so much less than what it was worth today when you gave them the $100. You need to be compensated for that, but they don't compensate you for that in bond math. It's just a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks in 10 years. Well, really it's a hundred bucks you lent today is worth maybe 70 bucks in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's being generous. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, if you own fiat contracts, what you should actually be doing rather than lending people the money, if you are a bond fund owner, you should actually flip it on its head and go out and borrow money. I'm not telling you to put it in Bitcoin, but you could borrow money and put it in other hard assets and be way ahead of the game because of the artificial low interest rates that the Fed is engineering right now. So long story short to say, always analyze your risks. Thank you for, uh, I'll say it again. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a risk guy. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be at risk of you guys calling me out and saying I have nothing. I, you know, whatever you just spewed was total garbage, but I'm willing to take that on because I've done it for 30 years. I have conviction that I'm on the right side of this trade. Uh, from a risk uh, return basis. And that's how I've always looked at, uh, at portfolio risk. So I think your clients are in good hands with someone like you that, uh, you know, talks about, how about this? How about your clients aren't allowed to come to you unless they have a volatility range of less than a certain amount. They're not allowed to tell you that uh, you've been doing a horrible, a horrible job for them. Is that <laughs> That's correct? right. I'm going to have to break out some, uh, I'm going to have to get the Bloomberg back to run that. Okay. Run that model. All uh, right, man. For sure. So thanks for, thanks for coming on. Enjoy. It's a pleasure. It. It's really awesome nice to meet you. I, uh, I, I'm really happy. These are some of the relationships that I've made on Bitcoin, Twitter, or sorry, on Twitter, focused yep. on Bitcoin, uh, somebody like Kane. So uh, keep up the good work and, uh, and uh, let's go. Uh, who did you say you like the Irish? So go, uh, go Notre Dame football, That's go, right. at, go Atlanta Braves. Uh, and you went to Auburn as well. So go That's Auburn right. Tigers. So thank okay. you for having me. Thank you.